Get a balanced analysis on both domestic and international topics within the framework of cross-cultural comparisons. This is Dialogue. Hello and welcome to Dialogue. 2024 is expected to be a pivotal year for China-U.S. relations, with many issues in question. The outcome of the U.S. presidential election, potential conflict points in the Asia-Pacific region, and whether the two countries can maintain good momentum after the San Francisco summit. All these issues have great consequences on bilateral ties. To address these questions in the first part of today's show, I talk with Mitchell Presnick, founder of Super 8 Hotels China. As a seasoned businessman with several decades of experience working in China and an astute scholar on China-U.S. relations, Mr. Presnick shares his insights on the world's most consequential relationship. In the second part of our show, I also talk with Jack Zhang, Assistant Professor of Political Science at the University of Kansas. Join us for our discussion from Beijing. I'm Xu Qinduo. Welcome to Dialogue. So Mitch, you know, we borrowed a term post-engagement. Uh, of course, we refer to the um, years, the decades before probably Trump presidency as engagement. And then we do see increasing, let's say, not really hostility, but uh, like kind of alienation between the two countries. Uh, and then we had this uh, San Francisco summit uh, where the two leaders decide that uh, they will work together to stabilize the relationship. Uh, so how do you characterize the current status of this uh, very important relationship between China and the United States? Well, well first of all, it's very nice to be here with you, Chindua. The relationship has moved from one of what I call engagement, where the two sides were working together with business at the centerpiece. And since 2018 or thereabouts, the beginning of a trade war and then a subsequent tech war and, and whatever we want to call the other relationships, we've now moved into a post-engagement relationship where business has been subsumed under uh, an umbrella of national security by both countries, I believe. And so the relationship has fundamentally changed. But the one thing that's important to keep in mind is that the business relationship has always been at the center because it's where we have the most direct shared interests. And that is where I focus. The visit that President Xi made to San Francisco was very successful from the point of view of the American business community. And it set a very conciliatory, conciliatory tone, which I hope both sides will build on. And the American business community hopes that we can all build on. Mm -hmm. uh, so, Major, talk more about this uh, trade relationship, uh, you know, trade and investment between the two countries. We know if you look at the, the trade number, I believe, uh, for 2022, for example, that's about, um, depending on the, the calculation, you, know, you have some differences, but largely it's about $700 billion. That's uh, a lot. <laughs> I mean, uh, for the two countries, uh, that's probably too much for the two countries to decouple. Well, that's right. I think, you know, um, the idea of decoupling is is um, fantasy. It's not a realistic way to address the relationship. And not just because of the fact that it's inadvisable from a business standpoint, which is what a lot of people like to think. The reality is both countries are so intertwined into the international economy now that if either side were to try to decouple from the other, the result is they end up isolating themselves. The United States 
controls basically global payments and the reserve currency that the entire world uses. China controls large to a large degree manufacturing and trade. So either country trying to decouple from the other would end up bringing negative consequences on themselves. And that's why the relationship, despite the challenges, still moves forward. I believe in the 1990s, uh, Mitch, you uh, came to China and uh, you came to, uh, and then you spent uh, decades in China. So tell us your story. You know, what brought you to China and um, what did you do during your stay in China? So I arrived in China on August 8th, 1988. And it was uh, about a 31-year um, I've been to about 150 Chinese cities. I've uh, traveled every part of the country. I speak and read and write Chinese. So I'm I'm an, I'm a foreigner, but I'm not an outsider. And so it gives me an interesting perspective. I can only tell you that it's been an amazing experience uh, to be in China for all of that time because I was able to experience the entirety of China's development and also the entirety of watching the U.S.-China relationship blossom into something that was quite extraordinary to watch um, and, and quite beneficial in so many ways for both countries. On the San Francisco summit, the two leaders, the two presidents, you know, agreed to work together to manage this relationship uh, in a skillful way. Uh, they do reach a lot of agreements. Uh, for example, you know, the Chinese side promised to invite like 50,000 young Americans to China to study. And of course, you know, just uh, a couple of days uh, ago, I think this, this week the uh, Chinese side has uh, said they are going to resume as much as possible the direct flights between China and the United States. I think that will be helpful for tourists and also for business people, obviously. And uh, so, uh, you know, of course, it's very extensive, you know, a lot of agreements on different, uh, uh, different uh, uh, areas. Are we going to see, say, a faithful implementation, a good implementation of those agreements uh, given, uh, I mean, or, or in another way, uh, will the election in any way affect the implementation of those agreements? No, I think that those agreements, I think um, there was a broad agreement that there was a need to bring down the temperature a little bit. I think that was something that everybody thought would be helpful. It's important to look back on the history of the U.S.-China relationship and remember that it started with ping-pong diplomacy, and I still have a ping-pong paddle signed by Dr. Kissinger um, at the 30th anniversary of ping-pong diplomacy at Diaoyutai he gave me. And I look at it sometimes to remind myself that this relationship began with very humble and small exchanges where we could agree on something. And if we couldn't agree on anything else, at least we could agree on ping-pong. And I think right now it's not a bad way to go forward. Let's agree on students going over to China. Let's agree on pandas coming back to the U.S. Let's agree on little things that we can build upon and feel good about and then move forward from there because that's that's a great way to create some stability. And I think that's an obligation, frankly, that both countries have to the world because there's no way that the world can feel safe and secure if the U.S.-China relationship isn't stable and secure. And that's something that I think is it's a responsibility when you're a great power like China and like the U.S., it's a great it's a great responsibility to look at the needs of the entire world and not just our own needs. And I think these are the kinds of things that can be very helpful for that. Mm -hmm. uh, well, at least this could be or this should be 
uh, able to agree uh, with each other on that. You know, that's uh, the both leaders have demonstrated that is not only by the two countries but also the rest of the world. Uh, speak of these people-to-people -people exchanges. Uh, uh, Mitch, the importance. I think a lot of people understand that. That's the foundation for bilateral relationship. You know, you know. I, I talked to a U.S. professor actually. Um, he he mentioned this um, to me. You know, like this um, travel advisory on the website of the State Department. It remains unchanged from a year earlier. Basically, uh, you know, uh, warns uh, against or, or cautions. Um, you know, uh, the Americans. Uh, you know, to be careful if you go to China. Uh, so, and also the Chinese side, just um, the, this week that has, uh, you know, basically saying the U.S. authorities uh, uh, blocking the Chinese students at the border, uh, saying dozens of Chinese nationals are being denied entry to the U.S. each month, uh, each month dozens of cases. So this is after San Francisco summit. So do we know the, the Biden administration, I mean, what, what's the policy in terms of people-to-people uh, -people exchange? You know, that's a great question, Jindua. I'm not actually sure exactly what the policy is. First of all, whenever you have an agreement like this, it does, there is an implementation period. There is a period of, you know, digestion where everybody needs to understand the new policies and, and understand how to move forward. So it could very well just be a case that things move a little slower within the halls of government than they do, say, in business. If, if it was a business agreement, we would probably be um, seeing the immediate changes. It's hard to say if it's if it's uh, one case or the other in the case of some of those issues you mentioned. I can tell you that it is regrettable to see some of that happening. I you know I was just in China in late November. Um, I know many of my uh, fellow American you know uh, you know China specialists uh, have also been to China in the last six months. I don't think any of us felt unsafe in any way. I think, you know, I, I personally felt it was extremely similar to all the 30 years I had been there previously. Although I will say, you know, it's incredibly efficient um, now moving around in, in Beijing and, uh, and other cities in China compared to even 10 years ago, just given how much China has moved forward on automation and, and some of these things. But, but back to your question, I think we're, we're going to have to wait and see what happens here i don't i don't know and i don't think anybody really knows exactly why that we haven't seen some of those agreements implemented yet but i think it's very possible it just might take a little more time and i also think that remember relationships this important and this big when they move in a direction there's momentum behind it and that momentum is also an inertia and so in whatever we think is happening we don't necessarily know the inertia involved in in moving a relationship and turning it over, even if it's only a few degrees, one way or the other. When, when we talk about this um, China-U.S. relationship, because it encompasses so many aspects, there's enormous discussion on this relationship. Um, I mean, you tweeted uh, not long ago that you know, when discussing, here's a quote, uh, U.S.-China relations now, we need serious cost-benefit analysis uh, with expected outcomes based on historical successes and failures. Uh, not more of this hawks and doves stuff. We are not just apes fighting over territory any longer. This is the age of the fourth industrial revolution and we either evolve or die. Tell us more about that. <laughs> so, well, 
the reason I'm here at Harvard is because I believe, you know, since I know pretty much everybody involved in the U.S.-China relationship from both sides, I've noticed that the, the times we're living in, we live in a time of hyperconnectivity and, uh, and, and, and evolutionary technology, um, exponential technology. Um, and yet the dialogue around our relationship is still very much rooted in old world thinking. It's very much zero sum scarcity mindset and frankly nationalism, which, which has served everybody well for many, many millennia is now starting to show that it may not be the most appropriate way to, to deal with relations between great powers. So there is a bit of a gap that I'm starting to see between, between the evolution of our thinking and the evolution of our technology. And I believe that our thinking in terms of how countries work with one another um, needs to evolve as well. I think we need to move beyond coupling and decoupling and beyond zero sum to positive sum thinking. And we need to understand that, look, the U.S.-China relationship, it's easy to look at things from the point of view of I'm Chinese and I'm looking at this relationship or I'm American and I'm looking at this relationship. But we need to understand that the U.S. and China are now two parts of a symbiotic pair. And that symbiotic pair means that whatever the U.S. does, good or bad in the eyes of the Chinese, it will eventually uh, have repercussions back in the U.S. And, and the same for China. Whatever China does in this relationship, it affects the U.S., which then affects China. So whether it's voluntary or not, the two sides are very much symbiotic, and the relationship needs to be viewed at least partly through a symbiotic lens. And we would need to ask ourselves, what if aliens came down in a spaceship and started to talk to us? They would not be looking at us in terms of Chinese and Americans. They would be looking at us in terms of sapiens, and they would be dealing with us as one species. It wouldn't make any sense for them to think, well, this species part over here are different from this species part over here. They would think that was quite primitive. And I think that, that as we move forward with our technology, I'm starting to think that it looks a little primitive. And it, yes, I understand the reasons behind it, and I'm not um, unrealistic. If anything, I'm, I'm very much in the realist camp on the U.S.-China relationship. I've never had any illusions about where we have common ground and where we have differences. But I believe that we need to focus a little bit more together on issues of common concern because things like climate change just simply won't be addressed without the U.S. and China cooperating. There's just no scenario where the U.S. does everything it can to, uh, to turn around climate change, but China doesn't for example, because then American businesses and even the American population would say, well, the Chinese aren't cooperating with us, so why should we do this? And then and the same is in reverse. If China were to do things to try to improve climate change and didn't see the U.S. following suit, then, then the Chinese side would, would clearly say, well, this is a waste of time. But more important is that the rest of the world, the 200 nations around the world that we share this earth with would also say, why should we do anything? if these guys aren't cooperating. So I think when it comes to issues like public health and climate change and even AI, I think that the two countries are far more likely to help themselves by ring-fencing some of those areas of common interest and focusing on them together, regardless of what's happening in the rest of the relationship. 
Foreign internet influencers living in China are hitting back as they face a fresh round of accusations of being cultivated by the Chinese government to shape narratives in favor of China. How true are those accusations? What's behind such narratives and who's been pushing them? Listen to what those online influencers have to say on this week's Chat Lounge, anywhere you get your podcasts and on CGTN Radio. Get a balanced analysis on both domestic and international topics within the framework of cross-cultural comparisons. This is Dialogue. To discuss more on the latest in China-U.S. relations, I talk with Jack Zhang, Assistant Professor of Political Science at the University of Kansas. He was selected as a China Specialist by the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations and has conducted extensive research regarding U.S. trade policy toward China. Welcome to Dialogue, Professor Zhang. Thanks for having me. Well, it's uh, some time since uh, the uh, summit between the two national leaders. Uh, you know, uh, when they met in San Francisco, it was a very successful one. Uh, so what about the follow-up actions from both sides? Yeah, so I really welcome the efforts made at the San Francisco uh, APEC summit to stabilize U.S.-China relations and uh, prevent a further deterioration of, uh, of the relationship. I know both sides worked really hard to make that meeting happen uh, in, in a relatively short period of time. I think we're already seeing some of the commitments um, being turned into concrete actions. The mill-to-mill dialogues have resumed, uh, cooperation on fentanyl is uh, is deepening. There was uh, coordination ahead of COP28 um, in decreasing greenhouse emissions. But I think if you uh, expect a reversal or a change in direction or a reset of U.S. policy towards China, you know, or any any cooperation sort of beyond the letter of the agreement, I think the uh, the White House statement uh, uh, readout was was very clear in outlining that it's it's about managing competition, right? Not suspending um, suspending that competition. And so, unfortunately, I I don't think that there's going to be um, much of a change in the broad directions or or in additional sort of areas of cooperation beyond what is specifically spelled out in that agreement. Well, on the trade issue, uh, you know, the U.S., uh, as we said earlier, the U.S. is not changing its policy on China despite the agreements, you know, between the two leaders. Uh, so the U.S. is still following a general policy. People would describe that, you know, uh, high-tech containment and then economic pressure on China. So the Biden administration has uh, maintained the controversial tariffs, for example. Uh, that's uh, probably one area. Um, we are not seeing, you know, clear changes yet. And also mm-hmm. the administration is even considering, you know, imposing higher tariffs on Chinese EVs, uh, electric vehicles mm-hmm. and minerals like uh, cobalt and uh, lithium. What do you make of this um, uh, I mean, possible policy out of the White House? Right. Um, I, I was very disappointed that there was not more progress on the white, uh, rolling back of, of tariffs under this administration, because I think it is an area in which, you know, both the U.S. and, and, and China could benefit. I have a, a student of mine wrote a very, um, I think, insightful essay for the, the China Focus Essay Contest on what he calls green protectionism, right? And this is the idea that there's difficult trade-offs um, between 
conflicting objectives like accelerating the green energy transition on the one hand and putting tariffs on renewable um, you know renewable energy so that to, to favor uh, US competitors or, or to keep um, Chinese products out of the United States the Biden administration I think believes that it can do both both of these things right that it can have a green you know uh, revolution green policy and also um, you know not rely on on Chinese imports. Uh, and politically, I think that idea is attractive, right? That you can have jobs here in the U.S. Uh, for these industries and, you know, it's helping with with competition with China in some ways. I think the problem is that it ignores the reality of economic trade-offs, right? That, that China is the market leader uh, that, on providing a lot of these goods at competitive prices, including a lot of green technologies you mentioned in the, in the question, right? EVs, you know, wind, solar panels, right? The, the, the issue, this issue kind of goes back even, you know, back to the Obama administration, right? And so it's doable to produce these things in the United States, but the question is how much longer will that take, right? And how much more expensive will that be? If you look at the numbers, you know, for example, China, US, they used to be the largest uh, or close to the largest trading partner of each other. Uh, but in mm -hmm. last year, for example, from January to October, the first 10 months, uh, what we see is there's a decrease by 7.6% um, on trade, on the total value of trade between the two countries. So do, I mean, first of all, you know, what are the factors you can, you know, you think they are contributing to this decrease? So decoupling efforts from the US, I guess, from what I see, and, and importantly, will this or does this indicate a, a downward uh, trend here? Yeah, it's a great question. And, and uh, you know, tariffs are having an effect, right? Tariffs are taxes on imports. And so the U.S. used to have average tariff rate about 3% uh, on Chinese goods, uh, similar to the rest of the world. And now average tariff tariffs on, on Chinese imports are at about 20%. That's a sevenfold increase. Uh, and they're still at seven three percent for everyone else, and so that means if there is an alternative uh, that used to be more expensive uh, products made outside of China, uh, now if it's within that twenty point uh, twenty percent tariff margin, now it's competitive in terms of price, right? I think the the challenging thing to to realize, and, and I think policymakers in the U.S. often neglect this point, is that in, in an era of economic globalization, economic nationalism is a double edged sword. Right? Tariffs don't hurt just Chinese companies. Tariffs on China <clears throat> doesn't hurt just Chinese companies, and they are not necessarily good at keeping out Chinese products, right? So foreign companies that manufacture in China and export to the U.S. are also affected by tariffs. American companies that import important components and do manufacturing here are impacted by those tariffs. And most interesting trend recently is that, you know, Chinese companies can move somewhere else, right, to do manufacturing, and that Chinese company can export goods from the U.S., let's say, uh, from Mexico or from Vietnam, and that's not a Chinese import by the way that we do trade accounting. And so, you know, firms are mobile and, you know, they, um, they're going to adjust their business practices to the reality of tariffs. And so in the meantime, right, American uh, consumers and uh, businesses are, are paying sort of higher prices as well on the, on the margins to deal with this. For two countries like China and the U.S., they are so interdependent in terms of trade and the economy, but still we do see a lot of, uh, say, you know, economic or even military uh, coercive uh, uh, actions or measures against uh, each other. Give us some examples in how, you know, 
in what way they're, you know, probably one country is doing uh, to the other. Politically and economically, I think we're at a low point, right, of the relationship is what Henry Kissinger calls the foothills of a new Cold War. Um, and a lot of that, I think, is driven by this dynamic of, of the security dilemma really unleashed by the trade war, as I see it, right? So from the U.S. side, you know, or, or even going beyond that, right, the Made in China 2025 policy was a major driver for why the Section 301 tariffs were put into place in the, in the first place. And, and I think a lot of Chinese analysts would say, well, those, the Made in China 2025 and, in, you know, indigenous innovation in general is about catching up because China was so far behind and on technology and so forth. Well, from the U.S. side, that was seen as, you know, um, industrial policy that is uh, giving an unfair advantage um, to Chinese uh, companies in, in some sectors and, you know, pushing out, um, you know, uh, U.S. companies in in um, in important industries, right? So so the tariffs came into place. Um, important to remember the tariffs were supported by major chambers, right? Usually friendly to China, but, you know, supported the Section 301 findings, at least, the investigations, uh, maybe not the tariffs themselves. But so that's why we, got, we ended up with the tariffs, though. We have, you know, retaliatory tariffs, right, that are seen as, uh, again, defensive, re- responding to this. But that hurts, you know, U.S. Uh, farmers. And, and so the cycle just continues, right? So um, unfortunately, right, in, I, I know many in, in, in China believe that the U.S. is intent on, um, you know, economic containment. I, I happen to think, you know, some people feel that way. I think I, I don't actually think that the that is, you know, the administration has been clear. The Biden administration is clear that that's not its intention. And I, I, I tend to believe them, right? But the the problem is when you're in this kind of a security dilemma, it doesn't really matter, right? As long as your actions are perceived as threatening by the other side and they respond, and those responses are then seen as escalatory, um, we end up in this destabilizing um, spiral where, unfortunately, I think miscalculation can happen, right? I believe the trade war was a miscalculation. I think both sides went into it with the initial escalation of tariffs, believing the other side would back down, um, believing that they understood how the the other side's domestic politics were going to play out. They were wrong, and now we're stuck with this uh, unfortunate kind of equilibrium, right? I I call it a war of attrition, right? The the trade war is still grinding on, but people have stopped paying attention, you know, to, to it no longer top of the political agenda for, for, I think, either country. It's really unfortunate, right? Again, I, it goes back to um, this idea of it's easier to break things, I think, is what we've learned in the last five years than to, you know, than to build them. Um, and so maybe we should be careful, uh, both sides, to halt so, the further deterioration of the relationship. On that note, we are coming to the end of today's discussion. Many thanks to our guests. I'm Xu Qinduo. Thanks for being with us. See you next time. Discover the realities and responses to our changing climate with Climate Watch. Uncover critical issues such as the Maasai Mara's disrupted wildebeest migration and the drop in the Panama Canal's water levels. Delve into solutions for a sustainable future. Tune in to Climate Watch on your favorite podcast platform. Become more eco-conscious and take action to protect our planet. Sideline Story brings you all things sports-related. The hottest topics, latest events, juiciest stories, all with a very personal take. Subscribe to Sideline Story Podcast for heated sports discussions covering events that are happening in China and around the world.